You are listening to Sick Biz Buzz with me, Hillary Jastrom. Welcome back to Sick Biz Buzz, the sickest podcast empowering chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs and the first podcast of its kind. We wouldn't be alive and well without the love and support of our sister company, J Hill Marketing. And so we want to extend our thanks today and let you know if you need copywriting, copy editing, and book editing, you know where to go. jhillmark.com. That's jhill with two L's, mark.com. Check out the services and get in touch. My guest today and I met a while ago. I can't remember when because Lyme and fibro and transverse myelitis brain, but I do know that he and I shared a similar spark. That when he got sick, he knew that he had to do more with his condition and his life. Jason Herterich, an engineering graduate, is now the founder of the podcast, The Discomfort Zone, and it features immersive stories on chronic illness and disability. So you know that's your jam. Discomfort Zone uncovers our collective humanity through stories of vulnerability, wellness, and resilience. Naturally, Jason is also a chronic illness and disability advocate, and he's here today to talk about his journey of getting sick and then learning how to live with the beasts, fibromyalgia, ME, CFS, POTS, and IBS. And we're going to learn what all of those acronyms stand for. Since we first met, I have been diagnosed with fibro myself, and so we share that crappy thing in common, huzzah. But I will let Jason tell you all about what happened in his life to make a change forever, how it happened, and when he began to see the light at the end that told him his life would be different, but good. Please welcome my fierce, honest, and ever forward friend, Jason Herterich. Thank you so much, Hillary. What an incredible introduction there. Um, so great to finally come on your show. I know we've been chatting about this for quite a while. So yeah, I'm really excited. Me too. And thank you so much for being here. I know that um, with our condition, sometimes we have to kind of mix up our schedules a little bit. And, and, uh, and I'm, I just want you to know, I totally understand. I know you totally understand. And that's like a super safe space for me. And I really appreciate that. Exactly. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. Oh, you caught me at a mouthful of tea. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to know, let's get to know you. Your life was on an entirely different trajectory. And what happened? You hit the skids and you were rudely brought to an abrupt halt. You could not continue down the path that you were on and you had to make some really tough and deep life choice. And you were young too. Not that you're not young now, but you were younger, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, shit really hit the fan for me back in uh, 2011. Things were going really, really well. I was in the fourth and final year of my university degree. Um, I was studying engineering physics. I had a very active social life. I was a varsity triathlete. Um, and I was looking to graduate and uh, I was going for interviews trying to find an engineering job for for afterwards and everything was going incredibly well and uh, until this one day where I was playing basketball just a pickup game of basketball and I caught a rebound I twisted my body really quickly and passed the ball forward 
and right as I did, it was the most intense pain I think I've ever felt in my entire life. And it felt like I'd just been stabbed in the side of my abdomen. Um, mm. I kind of limped off the court, fell onto the sidelines. It was diagnosed as an intercostal muscle strain. Mm. So those are the muscles that you use for inhalation and exhalation. So really, really painful. You know, if you break an arm, you can put it in a sling. You don't have to use it, but you can't, you can't really take a break from breathing. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> oh, that's miserable. Yeah. So, so uh, the doctors, you know, told me, give it three weeks and you'll be back playing sports and you'll be totally fine back to your old self. But that wasn't exactly the case. And that was the beginning of a really long journey. Um, and, and so just to talk a little bit about how that acute injury uh, turned into this chronic condition of fibromyalgia, as well as all the other um, conditions. Um, essentially, so I was in my fourth year, I was somebody who really thrived on stress and having a lot going on at the same time. And right as I had that injury, it was like everything I needed to take a break. I wasn't able to really leave bed for about a week. Um, and I got so far behind with everything else in my life, schools, interviews, all the work I had going on, that essentially for the rest of the year, I just had to push through all that pain that I was experiencing um, and ju just in order to get all of my obligations done. And I would push myself really, really hard for a couple of weeks. I still had the uh, acute pain from the injury. And so that, as soon as I was forcing myself to work harder and harder, the pain there just became more and more intense. And I, I think essentially what happened is it became a vicious cycle where the uh, mental stress that I was experiencing trying to graduate mm -hmm. um, was amplifying the pain that I was having uh, from the actual acute injury. And then the, the pain from that was making it harder to cope with the actual work that I had to do. And it became this very vicious cycle. And so the essentially the way that it's been described to me is that the um, the actual chemistry of my brain changed during that year where I developed a severe sensitivity to pain. Wow. Um, so that can happen. <clears throat> that can happen. And I didn't know that actually. I, I had no idea that, you know, because we don't know a lot about fibro. We, we don't know how it happens now. So were you initially diagnosed with fibromyalgia? So it took me uh, about three years to get a diagnosis. So okay. before then, I thought that it was just that I had this injury and that um, it, it was just a severe injury that hadn't healed properly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet over time, the pain began to spread from there to, you know, originally it was just this very local injury in the right side of my abdomen. Later on that year, six months later, I've got the exact same pain in the left side of my body. Then oh. it travels up my back to my neck, my head through down my hips, my legs and everything. And then it's this full body thing. And really nobody had an idea what was going on. You know, I was sent for all the tests, um, MRIs, you know, seeing rheumatologists, blood, blood tests, all sorts of stuff. And yeah, it was just mm -hmm. tracking down everything until finally in 2014, when I heard the word fibromyalgia for the first time. Yeah, that's crazy. And <clears throat> so it's, it's proof right there that you can develop fibromyalgia from a traumatic injury. And that, that's crazy. I don't think people know that. 
Yeah, and and so I think it it was really that traumatic injury in in um as well as burnout, just really severe mm. burnout, trying to graduate, mm -hmm. having all this stress under me and you know, also a lot of it was self-induced. I was putting all these expectations on myself mm -hmm. and the two just combined to create this downward spiral. So <clears throat> anybody who's listening today and I'm excuse the frog in my throat that apparently just wants to leap up and say hello. Um, anybody who's listening today, I mean, take note of that because stress has a lot to do with how your body is performing and functioning and you can really get into the danger zone with it and cause some um, reactions and actual physical issues if we don't get a handle on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that university life isn't exactly conducive to mm. mental and physical well-being all the time. So I think no. it's, it's quite easy to fall <laughs> into that. So we, were you living at the university then? Yep. Yeah, I was living and I, I ended up graduating. It was a really, really tough year in order to graduate. I got a, a job as well. Um, I, like oh, wow. I graduated, I got a job for afterwards. Um, it was really the year from hell though. Oh, it sounds like the year from hell. And so since then now you have additional diagnoses, ME, CFS, POTS, and IBS. Let's dive into those acronyms so we understand what those conditions are and um, how they're impacting you. Sure, so ME-CFS is myalgic encephalomyelitis as well as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, mm. Usually I screw up the pronunciation of that. Um, Very good job because yeah. I had no idea what was coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so essentially they're all, they're all diagnoses by exclusion. Well, except for POTS. I'll get into that mm. one afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, some doctors use e either term. Um, but essentially, it's just having chronic fatigue without being able to identify an underlying cause for it. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so some doctors just simply say, go with fibromyalgia. Some doctors, uh, like some doctors will include that fatigue uh, um, underneath the whole fibromyalgia mm -hmm. umbrella diagnoses, mm -hmm. and some will diagnose with both. Um, so there's that. Then post POTS, P-O-T-S, is mm -hmm. postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so it is uh, a form of cardiac dysautonomia which essentially means when I go from either lying down or sitting to standing up, my heart rate spikes by about 45 to 50 beats per minute. Mm. So um, mm -hmm. it's like all the blood vessels um, will constrict. And so to increase the blood flow, my heart just increases a huge amount and it creates So I guess a good way to, to describe it is like, you know, that feeling when you stand up really, really quickly and you get a head rush? Yes. Yeah, so it's like that, but that head rush will stick around for the next 10 minutes. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. And you can faint from that too, is that right? Yeah, and I have fainted a few times from it. I oh, have to be yeah. more mindful when I stand up. It's something I have to practice very conscious attention towards. So what are you supposed to do then? I mean, because are you supposed to go from lying to sitting up 
and then standing? Or is there a period of time when you have to switch positions that you have to kind of just sit there and let your body adjust? Or how do you do that? Yeah, so, so that's certainly one of the ways to, um, to deal with the symptoms there. Another thing, which is actually quite a pleasant thing, um, is I've been told to eat three times the amount of salt that the average person has in their diet. Well, so it's heck. like, Shoot. yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, oh, darn. <laughs> I got to pour tons and tons of salt on my French fries. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so, so funny. So there's, there's that there's, um, people can wear compression stockings as well. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But you have to be very, very careful. I mean, especially in the summer months, the symptoms get completely exacerbated with the mm. heat and the humidity and they can get much worse. So yeah, I just have to get up really slowly. Very true. The summer months, you really got to get a handle on that heat. I think to get a handle on the cold as well, because I don't think it's good to be freezing all the time. Like you're striving for some sort of a normal level, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think being on the coast or having more of a temperate climate would probably be best, but I happen to live in Toronto in Canada where we get really extreme summers and really extreme winters. We go yeah. from really, really hot to really, really cold. So, yeah. Yeah, you might even kick our ass because um, in Minnesota, we it's kind of swampy out this week. It's going to be in the 90s. And then in the summer, or I'm sorry, in the winter, it gets below zero, but I think you might have us beat as far as how cold it gets. Yeah, yeah. So I don't actually know um, the temperature by Fahrenheit. We do uh, Celsius, Celsius over here, but it can get to minus 20, 25 Celsius here in the winter, especially okay. in February. So it's, yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, and I don't know the conversion, but that sounds impressive to me. So that was, so we'll go with that. So then the uh, third acronym is IBS. That's irritable bowel syndrome, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Are you um, are you treating that with um, dietary restrictions or? Yeah, I tend to go by a low FODMAP diet, which essentially means I cut out a lot of things like um, onion, garlic, uh, cauliflower, nuts, and other, um, just other vegetables for the most part that are high in these FODMAPs, which are some sort of fermentable carbohydrate. I don't know the actual acronym for FODMAP, but um, wow. yeah, yeah, I just have to be more restrictive and I just drink peppermint tea like six times a day to help out with that too. Wow. So you have the freshest breath ever. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we got to look at the positive, right? We, like we just have to look at the positive. So you're struggling, you're suffering, you're having the year from hell. What happens to break you free of that time? So it really wasn't for several years later um, until I was able to break free from that. So I graduated from university in 2012 Mm -hmm. um, I got a job. I was working at an engineering firm and just kept pushing through the pain, kind of ignoring it, trying to pretend it wasn't there, yeah. living my life as though it's not there. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that for about a year and a half until my symptoms got so severe that I just simply couldn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I left. I went on um, you know, disability support. And it wasn't... Um, I actually continued 
going downward for a number of years after that. And so this is during that wild goose chase. I'm trying to find that diagnosis. I get the diagnosis in 2014. Even with that, there isn't really all that clear of a plan forward. I tried a whole bunch of different therapies, everything, meditation, Mm -hmm. physiotherapy, occupational therapy, massage therapy, everything, Um, lots of meditation, mindfulness. And even with all that, I continued going downwards until midway through 2017. Um, And at the time, I was essentially completely bedridden at the time. Um, You know, I was, I would get out of bed every now and then, but I wasn't able to go walk up and down the stairs. Um, You know, I barely had the strength to even talk um, or Mm -hmm. or feed myself and, and all that sort of thing. So I got to a really, really low point. I hit rock bottom before finally I got into the right um, rehab program that helped facilitate my recovery. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's different for everybody. So describe your pain with fibromyalgia and ME because I I know that it's different. It originates in the nerves, but it's different for people. Did you feel more pain? Did you feel more neuropathy? Yeah, it's a, it's a very deep, dull ache and it's really everywhere. So mm. it, it kind of just feels like I've got an ache on every single part of my body. Oh. Um, and it's yeah, there's a lot of fatigue that goes with it, lots of dizziness. Um, at times, it can just be as though like my entire consciousness just feels a little bit dulled. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, I, I guess that goes with the brain fog, like not being able to continue a conversation, but, but it's just really widespread. Uh, sorry, really widespread pain, essentially. So, but you did discover some things that got you up and out of that bed. This, it sounds like this was also the year of experimenting. After you go downhill for three years, you, you have to get out of bed. You have to start. And I know, man, after you've been in bed a while, it's like, uh, what's the saying? Like, if you spend one day in bed, you're weakened like it's three days or something like that. So it's really critically important for um, anybody who is suffering from uh, these types of nerve diseases. And, and we now know that fibro actually has a test that you can do to discover <clears throat> certain uh, qualities in your blood. So that pinpoints to uh, protein, I believe it is. It's a certain type of protein. Um, but in any case, it's important. This is why we have to keep moving every day. Even if you feel like ultra crap, you have to get up out of that bed. You have to move. You have to walk to your kitchen. You have to go downstairs. You have to go walk in your yard. I mean, whatever whatever the case is, but you do have to keep moving. Is that what you try to do each day? Yeah, yeah. And so I think what started my recovery first off was I was on some medication that really exacerbated a lot of my symptoms that made me extremely dizzy to the point like, yeah, standing up every single time took me several minutes just to get myself out of bed. Yeah. Um, and it felt like, you know, you're being punched in the face every single time you you stand up. Um, Mm -hmm. and so just that in itself was wiping out my energy. Um, so I was switched off of those medications and then from there, it was just a very gradual increase in my exercise. So I started, um, you know, at, at the time I wasn't going up and down the stairs. So the very first week after I switched my medication, it was like, okay, I'm going to go down eight stairs a day. 
for the next week. And then mm -hmm. from there, it was like, okay, I'm going to go and go down 20 stairs a day, go up and down 20 stairs. And then it was a very gradual increase. And I remember a month after that, I went for my first walk outside in about a year and a half or two years. So oh. that was, that was really incredible. You were, you were inside that long? Like you didn't get outside? No, I mean, I went outside like just in the brief time of when I, whenever I had to go to doctor's appointments, that mm -hmm. 20 seconds between the house and, uh, and my van. But besides that, no, it was just, it was inside for, I think it, it must've been a year and a half straight. So yeah. Holy cow. That's so you say so you, this medication exacerbates your symptoms and it's not doing it for you. Do you get off the medication then and start to explore your own solutions? Uh, yeah, well, I went off of that one and onto another one, which, which um, didn't have all those side effects as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then, mm -hmm. so from there, I was just able to exercise through the pain a little bit more. It was, it was really tough at first because I think there can be that fear to exercise when you haven't done it in a really, really long time. And yeah. I was really worried about overdoing it and then setting myself back even further. Right. But for, for a lot of it, it was just like, okay, let's just push through this. Let's see how my body responds. I'm going to be dealing with more pain afterwards, but let's just cope with that and push through and see how much more I can do. And, you know, by the end of the year, I was able to get back in the swimming pool. I was able to swim a little bit. And yeah, so that would have been two and a half years ago. And since then, it's been mostly a steady improvement with, uh, besides a couple of setbacks. That's amazing, especially the exercise part. And, and doing that with chronic fatigue, I can't pronounce the other one, so don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> but doing it with chronic fatigue is challenging. I mean, did you find that you had to go maybe two minutes at a time, take a break, come back to it later. How did you structure that um, exercise regimen for yourself? So I, I kind of had a rule where I'd get out of bed every 10 minutes and go walk around my upstairs for two minutes at a time. Wow. So it was like two minutes out of every 12 minutes. I'd be moving and then okay. I'd have one time during the day where say I'd go to the pool and I would hop in the water and I would just walk around in the water for, you know, maybe half an hour. I think that was probably mm. what I started at. Um, and at the beginning, it, I was completely wiped out. I wouldn't be able to leave bed for the rest of the day. But just gradually, um, over time, it became easier. And, and I, I think one of the big things for me was deciding ahead of time before I went into, um, into my actual workout how much exercise I was going to do. So I wouldn't base um, the amount, the duration of how long I was going to exercise based on how I felt during the workout. I would decide beforehand and I'd stick with it regardless of how horrible I felt. Um, and, and yeah, fortunately my body was able to, um, to deal with that. So. That is amazing. So even if you're crawling out on your nipples, you'd be like, no, this, this is what we said we're doing today. We have to, we have to follow through with it. So there's something to that, isn't there, in terms of developing a system that works for you and, and really just the adherence to it. Yeah. And, and because I found otherwise, there was just this internal conflict the entire time I'd be working out where mm -hmm. I'd be saying, oh, you know, I think I'm overdoing it. And you, you get in your, or I got stuck in my head a whole lot during that. And then I'm not even being present in my body when I'm exercising. 
And, sure. you know, I, I would get stuck in um, a state of fear while I was doing it, which really doesn't, which really isn't conducive to uh, healing at all. So, so deciding on a time um, before I went into it, sticking with that, it allowed me to be more present in my body and just deal with the pain while it was coming during that exercise. And then reminding myself that at the end of this, I'm going to go lie in bed. I'm going to turn on some Netflix, watch a comedy special, and I'm just going to enjoy it. That's awesome. So you're a big comedy special guy, right? Stand-ups? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like uh, <laughs> I was really big into them back then. I don't listen to too, too many anymore. Oh, that is awesome, though, because that is where I find some of my relief, too, is through humor. And I think it's important that you have to maintain your humor through it all. It's like if the humor is gone and everything is just way too serious, then life starts to take on a level of suck that you just like, what's the point, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Humor for me was a really huge thing all along. I found that, you know, being incredibly sick for that year and a half mm -hmm. everybody who came and visit me immediately there was this sense of like you know just i th there was something in the air where there's everybody just felt really uncomfortable and really feeling down about seeing me in such mm -hmm. um seeing my health downward spiral like that so i found even if i could make a little joke every single time I saw all my friends and everything, like I had very little energy. So when they would come in, they would walk upstairs, walk down to the end of the door, they'd open up my door to go and enter my room and expecting me to just seeing me lying in bed. And I would just be hiding behind the door and I'd jump out and just scare them. And they're like, whoa, I was not expecting that. I was expecting you to be in bed. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. I love it. So you have to maintain that humor. I think that's a really good lesson today, kind of interwoven with all of those things. Humor helps you come out of some of the dark places ever too. And I know you went to some really dark places. So you started on this journey back and then eventually something changed within you where it became more about looking outside of yourself. It sounds like you kind of had a handle a little bit on what was going on with you personally. So you start looking more outside of yourself and thinking, what can I do and how can I help? What was that epiphany like for you? Was there a, was there a snapshot moment where you went, oh, ding, I'm going to do this? Or was, was it a gradual realization that you need to start this podcast because people need you? So yeah, the story behind this, um, I've, I would say that podcasting really found me and it wasn't the other way around. I know that's very cliche to say, but, um, <laughs> but when I was really sick in bed, um, it got to the point where um, I couldn't really watch TV anymore because mm -hmm. I just had such bad headaches. And so I switched to watching, uh, to listening to podcasts because I could shut my eyes during that and it, and it was something I could focus on regardless of how bad my headaches or pain were. Um, and as you know, then I began to recover a little bit. Um, and initially I thought, okay, you know, I, um, one day I would like to start a podcast one day when I'm healthy and, you know, I've recovered from all these illnesses. And I think I, I fell into a bit of an ableist mindset there where I was like, once I have you know, overcome my illnesses, then I'm going to be, you know, then I'll have wisdom to share with the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it was one day when I was listening to this storytelling podcast, um, and it was about a gentleman who had recently gotten out of jail. He was experiencing 
heroin withdrawal because he was a former addict. Um, and he just documented his day-to-day stuff and the struggles, the stigma that he experienced, um, the conversations he would have with his parents about all of that entire ordeal. And I was completely captivated by it. And I really recognized a lot of parallels between our journeys. Um, you know, al- although there are many, many differences, I felt like many aspects of his journey I could, um, um, I could just recognize in my own. And so it was right as I was listening to that podcast, I was like, no, I I think I need to start telling my story now. Like, I I think I just need to start documenting all these difficulties that I'm going through, you know, recovering, but still dealing with lots of symptoms, dealing with all sorts of challenges and recovering from this isolation of living in my bedroom for a year and a half. Um, So, so that's really where, where the, where uh, the podcast came from. So you're doing the podcast, you're sharing your story, and then it flips to now I want to hear other people's stories and I want to facilitate telling them and sharing them with the world. That's when the Discomfort Zone podcast was born, yes? Um, So I started off in Discomfort Zone sharing a little bit of my own story. So the Mm -hmm. first few episodes were about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after I told some of my own, for a while I had been wanting to branch out. Um, I find that I found that sharing my own story was very limited. I wanted to go and learn from other people and, and share their own unique experiences. Right. Um, so I uh, ended up, I joined this media lab that is based in Toronto and they're called D-Next Accessible Media Lab. Okay. And they are a media lab that are run completely by media artists, all who live with disabilities themselves. And what? Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Like, you know, everybody has, there's a huge diversity of disabilities that are there. Um, It's also, it's a training program where we look for um, emerging storytellers um, to go in and go through this 10 week training program where they produce a media piece at the very end of it. Um, And then, yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of grows from there. So I am both I both went through the training program myself, and I'm also on the advisory board for for the lab as well. That's amazing. And because you wanted something more, so you wanted to be a part of something, but then it just, it seems like there's something inside you that's like, but wait, there's more. And then you want to, and then you want to branch out and become just a part of sharing and helping. You seem to have a very altruistic type of personality. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, that certainly was a huge part of it. At first, mm-hmm. I was connected with some other people in the chronic pain community, but you know, from there, it's okay. That spreads out to the entire chronic illness community, mm-hmm. and then chronic illness and disability community. And I found connecting with people with such a diverse um, range of disabilities and chronic illnesses. It was such a rewarding experience. Um, you know, just getting together, producing stories on it as well. It was like. I was trying to create this sense of community and social support through my podcast and through sharing a lot of these stories. And and really, I just learned so much. I produced a four-part podcast series recently on on people with disabilities and how they're being impacted by COVID and what challenges are they navigating through that. So so I learned so much through that and working with other storytellers to uh, produce this series. Storytelling is so important, uh, and I think we, 
I think everybody kind of downplays it a little bit, but it is so important. And when you hear other people's stories and you hear what they're going through, what does that do for you? To me, it, um, it could be a story about anybody. It could be a story about somebody whose opinions I disagree with. Mm-hmm. But regardless, hearing them tell their story and where they came from, it, it almost, I would say it expands your sense of empathy. It's like you can recognize something in them that you can relate to. And um, yeah, you just feel connected to them and their experience. It's almost like you experienced a bit of their world for that period. Yeah. Does it make you feel stronger? Does it give you strength and resilience? Yeah, I, I would say so. Mm-hmm. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of look at your life and go, well, if they're doing it, then I can do it. I can keep moving forward myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, th- there's so many lessons that, that you can learn just from hearing somebody's story. Um, it's a really incredible thing. It's very, and I, you know, you and I kind of do the same thing. So I feel really fortunate too when I, when somebody trusts enough to share you know, the deepest meaning of who they are and their story and their deepest pain and confusion and vulnerability. Um, it's, it's a position that you put yourself in to, it's, it's honoring. I feel like it's an honor. Absolutely. And I felt prior to all this, prior to getting into storytelling, I wasn't really somebody who embraced this sense of vulnerability. I wasn't somebody who looked inwards like that. And I feel that since I've listened to all these stories and I've been producing them myself, it's like every time I hear a story, I'm able to look at myself and, and understand myself a little bit better and open up to my own internal experience a little bit uh, better. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what's the most in- inspiring story you've ever heard? Hmm, that's a very good question. Um, huh, let's see. Um, it might be, um, I recently interviewed him for my podcast. His name is Keith MacArthur and mm-hmm. he's the host of a really incredible podcast called Unlocking Bryson's Brain. And it was the story of, um, the, this family whose, uh, 13 year old son lives with a really rare genetic brain disease um, that has him locked at the developmental level of a one-year-old, um, yeah. despite being a 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this eight-part podcast series that I absolutely fell in love with, um, where they navigate all these challenges and f- in seeking a diagnosis. It took them 11 years to find a diagnosis. Holy moly. Um, yeah, uh, going 11 years and having no idea whatsoever. Then finally, they find this diagnosis and since then, um, this father has connected with families with all with this um, very rare brain disease across the the world. He has also um, started uh, the Grin Cure Grin Foundation, mm-hmm. which is dedicated to curing, finding cures and therapies uh, for Grin disease. And in doing so as well, he also won like a the Zuckerberg Chan a huge Zuckerberg Chan uh, grant towards setting up this foundation, uh, networking with scientists, holding conferences, and essentially trying to find cures for it, for um, this disease. Um, And and at the same time, so so it's this incredible story 
of um, finding purpose through all this, like really um, showing that resilience and really um, seeking answers and really pushing forward regardless of, of, you know, being undiagnosed for that many years. I just, I couldn't even imagine it myself. And at the same time, the story also showed like his son, who was a 13 year old, it showed him as a human being, not just as somebody with a disability. It showed him as somebody who is very extroverted and loving and caring. Um, yeah. So it, to me, it just had everything. Okay. That's, that's absolutely incredible. And the father is doing the same thing that you're doing, reaching out. He's bringing people together, encouraging a safe place to talk about things and look what's happening. Look what's coming back to him. That's what I was trying to impart on people is that it's not always just about you. You know what I mean? Like we, we share pain and we experience pain to share it with other people so that, so that then we're lessening that pain. I believe pain shared is, is pain lessened, but it's also because collectively we can all feel together. So whatever this father is feeling, whatever the son is feeling, you know, that's all a part of our experience. It's almost like we're one being in a way. And we, you know, like different parts of the body, like maybe you're the arm and I'm the leg and the dad's the head or whatever, you know what I mean? But collectively, if we take care and we share and we work on dealing with this pain and what he's doing, discovering and trying to discover cures for his son um, is incredible. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's being able to connect to something bigger than yourself. I think that that is, yeah, I think that's one thing that my chronic illness has really shown me personally is like connecting to something bigger than yourself is yeah. how you can find purpose in this world. And you need it. You absolutely need it because if you do not get out of your own head and you do not get out of your own pain, that is where you're going to stay. And it's going to get very, very dark in there. All the lights are going to wink off one by one. And then it's going to be you in the darkness, even though you might be sitting in the sunshine, even though you might have the, your family around you. And I'm not talking about depression and anxiety as a clinical, clinical diagnosis. I'm talking about more episodic you know, this occurs and then you get stuck and you have to come out of it and you're the only person who can do it. You have to decide I'm, I'm worth it. And one way to do that is through feeling gratitude for what you have, but it is also learning about other people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as well. I think it's something that you've really nailed in your own podcast as well, creating this sense of community and connection. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, <clears throat> when I set out to create this nonprofit, it was like, we're going to have all these resources and everything. And when I'm finding the value that, that people want is the community. They want yeah. someone to say, I'm there. I, I feel the pain and they want the validation. You get the validation. Sometimes it's like, hey man, just give me the validation today so I can get on with it, <laughs> you know? And then, and then I'm able to do it. But, um, you know, there's, there's a balance between validation and self-care. So you're definitely on this path. What do you want people who live with chronic illnesses and disabilities to know? That you're not alone out there, um, that there are so many other people 
out there who are experiencing um, similar things to what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Um, brain fog is kind of kicking in for me. At this <laughs> sure. Moment. No, I get it. It's brain fog is a funny thing sometimes, isn't it? Like, so here's my long drawn out point that I have several supportive arguments, and what the hell was I just <laughs> saying? We'll never know. <laughs> you start into a thought, and you just all of a sudden, it's like, nope, you run into this brick wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would say first steps based on our conversation first steps for someone who's listening and and really struggling uh, to get out of bed, really struggling with pain is as much as it hurts, you know, and this could be any sort of neuropathy. It can be that deep, deep ache that is just relentless and it is enervating, or it can be burning and tingling, which is the kind of pain that I get. And I get that deep ache sometimes, Um, but it's all enervating, but you still need to push yourself. You still need to um, be self-sufficient to a degree, right? So you're making your own tea. You're getting up in the morning. You're making sure that you get fed. You're getting yourself out into the sunshine or the wind shine or whatever. Um, But it's important to make these decisions to keep your body moving, but also because it tells you I'm doing this because I care about me. I'm worth it. Yeah, you you completely nailed it there. Pushing your comfort zone a little mm-hmm. bit every mm-hmm. every day, doing something that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I think that, you know, that that in itself can be um it can be very freeing. Absolutely. So knowing everything that you know, would you walk down your path the same way? Or if you could go back in time with the information that you have now, would you do anything differently? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I think so. Um, When I look back to that year at university and afterwards, when I was just ignoring, in a sense, I was ignoring my symptoms a little bit. I wasn't really listening to my body very often mm. because the the thought that I could have a condition that was actually chronic pain, I think I did recognize that at certain points early on, mm-hmm. but I didn't I also didn't want to confront that reality. So I almost ignored that and tried to live my life as though I didn't have that instead of accepting these limitations and making lifestyle changes that could have facilitated my healing and recovery much early on. And as well, um, being able to do that, I think also could have connected me to this sense of community much earlier on as well, which could have sped things up, um, you you know, sped up my recovery perhaps sooner. Um, But yeah, Yeah. that, yeah. You know, and community is a literal lifesaver whether it's a, a virtual community or if we're ever ungrounded, you guys are ungrounded up there. We're still grounded because we can't behave ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, Unfortunately. We're like, God, good grief. I'm so, I'm so over it. People just do what we're supposed to do. Then we'll all get ungrounded and shut the fuck up. Okay. Anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> sorry, grandma. I'm just saying <laughs> I felt really emphatic there. So there you go. Um, no, it's, it's really, it's really shocking and it's so pleasantly surprising to find that community 
just the simple act of connecting with another human being is so incredibly healing. I think it's, I think it's akin to um, human touch or even if you have your dog sit with you, you know, and his warm bulk is on you, you're connected with another living being. And it's really critically important, even when you don't want to, when you feel like garbage and you're like, well, the last thing I want to do is talk to anybody or whatever. You know what? People feel the same way. Just <laughs> so many people feel like shit now and they're sick now. And we live in this toxic world and it's waiting for you. So I, I would do the same thing too. Um, you really tend to go inwards into your own head and your own thoughts and you shut people out. And if you can just take one step, just one step to say, hey, you know, introduce yourself in the sick biz community, introduce yourself in the discomfort zone community, any of the communities that Jason has going on. I think you'll find that you'll meet people who are just delightful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you'll meet other people who are also seeking connection. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. So long overdue, but hey, that's the way we do it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like great to finally do this. Yeah, I know we were chatting about this back in February. Isn't that crazy? And I feel like it was, I don't know, was it only February? Well, this is the year that never ends. So it feels like it's been like a year and a half to me. But it feels I, like a decade. <laughs> it does, right? How you doing? You got grandkids yet? What's going on? <laughs> So where can people reach out to you? So people can find me on social media. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My handle is dzonepodcast. Uh, they can also find my podcast across any podcasting app. Just enter discomfort zone into the search bar and you'll find it. Fantastic. Thank you so much again. An absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Hillary. It was a blast. Awesome. Sometimes we discover strengths inside us we didn't even know we had when we are faced with surprising challenges in our lives. Jason took a very dark time and turned on the light so he could see where he was going and what he wanted to be focused on, even in the midst of terrible pain and discouragement. And now he has found a deeper meaning because he chose to focus on the outside where people needed him versus the inside where all the pain is. It's not to say that he isn't confronted with pain and that he doesn't have to manage it, but he knows he is more than the conditions he has been diagnosed with. In fact, he is so much more. Who he is spills out of himself and onto the rest of the world. We are so honored to have had him on the show, and I encourage you to follow his podcast and listen to it, The Discomfort Zone. You can find it, as he said, on any podcast carrier. Get the full immersion into what he is sharing with the world, how he is healing and weakening the intensity of pain one story at a time. Because remember, pain shared is pain lessened. Again, please reach out to him social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the D Zone podcast, if you would like to personally connect with him.
And also, again, consider J-Home Marketing for your copywriting, copy editing, and book editing needs. I had to sound like a little pukey 80s DJ there for a minute. They've been around since the early 2000s and continue to own the industry as well as keep up on all things marketing with a fierce base of getting the psychology that moves people. So this is not flash in the pan marketing, but evergreen marketing built on solid standards. That's it for today's episode of Sick Biz Buzz. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. <laughs>